I'm still in shock. It still blows my mind, you know, how this all came to be. So I really want to start with you, if you can, reading the email that you sent to me. All right, uh, it was February 23rd. Ethan Ward article on homeless. Joshua Ray Williams has family been looking for him. I was his guardian until he turned 18. His half brother and I have been looking for him and had a lot of he had a lot of issues and would disappear for long periods of time. That was 55-year-old David Mays. He was Joshua's guardian for several years starting when Joshua was just 14. But let me not get ahead of myself. Joshua first appeared on my radar while I was still an undergrad writing a story about the number of unhoused people who died in 2020 in LA for Crosstown. One of the people profiled in the story was Joshua, who was found dead from a drug overdose inside the doorway of a jack-in-the-box in downtown LA. The article was published in February 2021. That's also how Joshua's family learned that he had died from an overdose. When I first got the email, I was stunned. I had never been in a situation like that before, and I thought to myself how awful it must have been to learn about a loved one dying by Googling his name and my story coming up. And then I think I struggled with feelings of feeling grateful because I actually did write the story and they could find out. Later that day, on February 23rd, 2021, I got a DM on Instagram. Are you the one that wrote the article about the quote homeless person unquote Joshua Ray Williams in front of a jack-in-the-box in LA that died of a suspected overdose? Hi, yes, I wrote the story. Are you the person who emailed me earlier, David? No, I'm his sister Amber. I don't have Instagram. It turns out she was messaging me from the account of someone she knew. My article was apparently making its rounds through the family and I was devastated. From Heat Drawn Media, this is Reputation, a podcast that inspires you to think deeper, approach each other with better understanding, and goes beyond the surface of social issues. I'm your host, Ethan Ward, and this season is all about the intersection of reputation and homelessness. You'll find nuanced conversations about the lives of people experiencing homelessness, the loved ones who lost them, and the professionals who work with them. I was able to connect Joshua's family with the LA medical examiner's office so they could begin the process of claiming his body. A month later, I reached back out to David, the original person who emailed me, to see how they were doing and to check in on them. He told me he was sad and if I ever wanted to talk about Joshua that I should reach out, he'd be willing to chat. Almost two years later, we got a chance to do that. This episode, we reflect on Joshua's life through his own words. His sister actually shared his last journal entries with me so I'll read some of that later in the episode. I'll also take you back to the jack-in-the-box where Joshua overdosed. But right now, we'll remember him through the eyes of David, his former guardian, and discuss the impact of losing someone while unhoused. On a video call, we talk about how David going to jail for a sex felony may have contributed to Joshua's spiral, what Joshua's reputation is in the eyes of his family, and the legacy that he leaves behind. I want you to take me back to the day that you stumbled on this article? Well, it was February. His uh, brother, William, had called me and asked me if I had heard from Josh. Uh, the typical pattern was Josh was about six months or so. We would get 
a call from him, one of us would, and we'd keep each other updated on what was going on. Uh, we hadn't heard from him in a, about a year, and uh, we were getting concerned. So uh, him and I both started Google searching, and uh, our first thing, we checked the Los Angeles area uh, police blotter and uh, jails to see if they had any uh, inmates with his name there. Uh, because that's usually how we find them in the past. I believe William was the one that actually came across your article through a Google search. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sent me a copy of the newspaper uh, uh, clipping. And uh, we read it. And then I wrote the letter reaching out because we were hoping to uh, find him and, you know, find out what happened, exactly what happened. So that's yeah. pretty much how it went. Um, Can you tell me a little more about how you felt when you read the article? The article fully was a very well done article. Um, but personally, I was totally devastated that he had passed. Mm -hmm. um, I took I had to take the day off from work. I just it was just uh, heart wrenching. Um, and there's a little bit about it that really bothered me was the fact that the last time he did call, um, we actually found the article a year after he had passed. So he had been dead a year. Uh, his last phone call, he did a lot of apologizing and saying he was sorry. Um, and, uh, as I thought back reading your article, I it was very close to the last phone call a year before that he passed. So um, I think I was one of the last people he talked to. So that was really uh, hard because that conversation, I just kept on telling him how much I loved him. How much I missed him. I wish he would come back to New York to be with me and his brother, you know, get back with family. And he just couldn't do it. What did you make of that conversation then? I mean, knowing you know now that, you know, he had passed away later. But then what did you make of that conversation? Um, at the time, I just figured... Um, because the way he was with a lot of things, he always felt guilty about something. He felt like he had done something wrong or everything else. And I, I tried to reassure him in that conversation um, that I cared about him no matter what had happened, no matter what he had done, that I would forgive him for it. Mm. And uh, he just said, I know you'll never forgive me for this. You can't. It's impossible. And it's like, no, what you don't understand, Josh, is when when I took custody of you, I took on that responsibility to care for you as a parent. Mm -hmm. And to me, a parent loves their kid unconditionally, no matter what they're doing, 
the kid's doing or what they're going through is to be there for them. How did Joshua come into your life? Okay, he was uh, 14. I lived upstairs from his birth mother and her boyfriend. Her boyfriend and I had been friends for about a year and a half. Uh, Joshua lived in uh, Indiana with his uh, aunt and uncle who had adopted him when he was very young. Um, from my understanding, I believe he ran away to come and see his mom. And uh, so he came to New York to visit his mom. They didn't have room for him. There was a, they were one bedroom apartments. Uh, they asked if I would be willing to house him. So he had a place to sleep. So I gave him a, uh, my bedroom or the living room. So it was the living room was his and I had my bedroom and uh, I let him stay so he could be close to his mom and he had a place to stay. Um, and we just spent a lot of time talking. Of course, we're there. And, and uh, I guess some of the stuff I said made sense or, or connected with him because he did eventually a couple months later go back to Indiana. About a year after that, I get a phone call from him asking if he could come back. Uh, talked to him for a little bit, and then his adopted parents got on the phone and said, look. And how long was he with you after that? Well, he stayed. He was with me probably till he was about 21. But he did a little jail time, and then he, he would – and. He would just take off and go places for a month or two and then come home. Um, but from from 15 to 18, he was pretty much at the house. Mm. After that, he lived there, but he really wasn't there a lot. Yeah. Why do you think that he wanted to come back from Indiana? Well, what he, he told me was it, I just, I was the first person that would like listen to him. It was concerned about him and not what he could give me or what I could get from him. He had really been used a lot as a, a young person. I was just someone that was giving him a safe environment to live in until he was able to get to adulthood. And uh, yeah. it was about two years later that he came home one day and just said, dad, <laughs> it's like, what do you, <laughs> cause I never asked for that. I never wanted that. But in that time frame, I had earned that kind of respect from him that uh, he considered me a, a parent at that time. Hmm. All right. So you said that he had a reputation of being a bit of a wanderlust. Can you talk more about like that in his reputation and, despite all these challenges that he had, what you thought of him or what you made of him or what he made of himself? Very early on, I saw that he had a lot of potential, but he couldn't see it because of so much of the negative input that was put into his life. Uh, mm -hmm. His mother's uh, battle with drugs and her issues, uh, his adopted parents' issues with having to take him and not really wanting him. But I saw the potential. He was very creative, very smart, um, 
very determined. Uh, like I said, the wonderlust thing, I would get phone calls from North Carolina and I'm in North Carolina. I won't be home tonight. I get phone calls from Maine, uh, gotten phone calls from uh, uh, Washington, D.C., um, Pennsylvania, other places in New York. It just, if he wanted to get somewhere, he was going to get there. Yeah. Can you tell me the time that you were, the first time you remember him calling and saying, I'm in California, I'm in Los Angeles? That was uh, much later. Mainly the East Coast in Indiana was uh, when I actually, when he was living with me. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly when I found out that he was in Los Angeles. Okay. It wasn't so, long ago, though. Were you all in communication during this time at all? Because I know you said that you all had kind of fallen out um, for some time. So is it during that period when you weren't speaking that he ended up maybe in California or Los Angeles? Uh, yeah, during the, the estrangement part of the, yeah. Okay. I believe that's when he got out there. Okay. So you did share with me that you were convicted in 2004 of a criminal sexual act in the second degree, and you ended up having to go to prison. How long right. did you go to prison for? I had a three and a half to seven. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did uh, uh, my CR date, which most people with those types of crimes do. And then I voluntarily committed myself to a treatment program that New York State has um, because I just didn't want to get back out and, and, and do, ever do anything like that again. Did you, do you think that you going to jail and then going to the program that you had to do for seven years, do you think that that somehow... Like, I guess, do you feel responsible for the trajectory that his life took because of your, your conviction? I know I had a part in it. I don't know if it would have changed it. I might have been able to keep him from going homeless and moving out there if I had stayed. Uh, I don't know. I thought about it and... It's like maybe it would have changed it. I, I, I just I don't I don't know. And uh, one of the things I learned through all my personal experiences, I can't beat myself up over what I've done in the past. I have to build uh, a positive future for myself. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the messages I tried to give him towards the end when we started talking again. It's the past is the past. We we can't. We can't fix what we did back then. We can only fix what we're doing now. Mm. And I, I, I know I had a part in where he ended up because I had abandoned him and I had uh, violated his trust. You know, I didn't do nothing to him, but I did it to someone else and that violated the trust we had. How does that make you feel? When I take time to think about it, it makes me feel bad. It, it really hurts that, uh, uh, like I said, I had over 10 years to, to think about it. I mean, not just him passing away, but that violation. One of the main things through the whole treatment program was 
I talked about how I violated my trust with him and how I had hurt him and abandoned him. And that was one of the big issues I had dealing with my my mental health issues that I was dealing with in the institution mm-hmm. was that I had let him down. Uh, someone that had uh, looked up to me and depended on me. And that was uh, really hard for me to accept and deal with. And uh, I said, I've had to deal with it. I've had to move on from that and just make sure I don't do those things again in the future. How long did you go without speaking to him after that happened? But it wasn't until after I got out that he actually contacted me again in 2017. Hmm. And what did the, how was that conversation? It was a little odd at first um, for me because it was, I didn't want to do anything to lose that contact again. So I was very careful. He At that time, he let me know that he was sorry for, like, cutting me off and uh, that he shouldn't have done that. But uh, I told him I just, I, I understand. And, uh, again, one of the things that after he moved out, it became really difficult to talk to him on the phone uh, about anything because everything was, uh, they're listening. Who was they? With Josh, it was it was a uh, uh, he had developed this uh, paranoia that someone was watching him or or listening to him or uh, trying to hear the conversations, uh, government, whatever entity, and uh, I would always ask him who, but he would say, "Well, they're listening." I can't say. So, did you surmise by this point that he was actively using drugs? Oh, I, I, yeah, I was quite sure. Of it. Uh, when did that start for him? Well, before I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time when he came, when he was 14, when I first met him, he was doing uh, marijuana. Um, he would tell me about huffing and some other stuff he was doing. Uh, I wasn't doing anything at the time, and I I tried to keep it out of the house. Um, I came home a couple times and he was robo-tripping, I guess is what they called it at the time. They what was, is it uh, called? Robo-tripping, uh, large doses of robotussin. Oh, okay. So that drug use, do you think it goes back to the dynamic of his childhood and like the issues with his mom? Yes, because one of the biggest arguments Josh and I had with each other all the time uh, was her drug use and her encouraging him to use drugs. Why would she encourage him to use drugs? I, I really can't fathom that. That's yeah. one of the big things I could never really fathom. She would invite him over to get high with her. And uh, again, I'm not a parent. I wasn't, you know, I had a legal guardianship of him. You know, they, his adopted parents had signed him over, but there wasn't really anything I could do. I was thinking about him ending up in California and being in LA 
and you said that you had talked when recent times when you had talked, he had developed like this paranoia. Did he ever share with you later on when you all had reconnected about what his life was like in Los Angeles? The only time he really talked about that was that last conversation I had with him. Uh, he talked about that he wasn't, uh, he didn't have anywhere to live. I said, well, you know, you can always come home. But he said, uh, the restaurant you mentioned, what was it? The Jack in the Box. Okay, the Jack in the Box. Uh, he told me how nice those people had been. They had let him, um, I guess he would do little things for them and clean up and stuff. And they would let him wash up and clean up at the restaurant and stuff and give him some food. So they were kind of looking out for him a little bit, I guess, is the way he described it. They would let him come in once in a while and wash up and clean up and stuff. And uh, he just, he was very secretive about a lot of stuff. He had always been kind of secretive about stuff. Did he ever tell you what he was using or taking at the time? Uh, no, he wasn't clear on what he was taking. Okay. He, he kind of indicated whatever or anything he could get his hands on. David says Joshua had been in L.A. for at least a year and had no idea why he would want to come. David didn't know anyone in L.A. Neither did Joshua's brother, William. The only thing David can think is that Joshua wanted something new. That journey would eventually lead Joshua to the Jack in the Box on the fringes of downtown L.A. When I first wrote the story about the number of unhoused people who died in 2020, the only thing I had from the medical examiner's office was an Excel spreadsheet filled with rows. There were no names. So I started Googling addresses where people had died and noticed that Jack in the Box came up for Joshua. So I'm at the Jack in the Box where Joshua was found um, uh, dead from an overdose. Uh, he wasn't a regular here at the location on Sunset Boulevard. Um, it's kind of near the edge of downtown but he was discovered on the ground by the front door on March 31st of 2020. And the manager of the restaurant at the time, her name was uh, Frances Robles. She said that a customer had called in to complain about Joshua because they thought he was sleeping um, in the doorway to the restaurant. And she told me that when she went to wake him up, that he looked blue. And she said that she came back inside, she called 911, and then the paramedics came pretty fast. Uh, by the time the paramedics got there, they told her that Joshua had overdosed and he had already died. And the manager at the time, Francis, says that she was stunned. She says she was stunned because she said it's normal for unhoused people to overdose outside. And they didn't think that he would pass away or anything. And I, you know, by the time that he got to the medical examiner's office, they had said that they had pretty much exhausted all of their resources trying to locate uh, Joshua's next of kin, but they couldn't find anyone. Joshua was just 38 years old when he overdosed and died. I think the part for me that stands out the most is how she had mentioned that people were calling to complain about Joshua because they thought he was sleeping 
I think the thing that caught me by surprise is that people didn't try to... Well, I didn't get the impression that people were trying to help him initially. The calls that the manager got were from people who were complaining because they thought he was blocking the doorway by sleeping. And as I'm sitting here now, it's kind of crazy to think that like people are coming and going, you know, going about their day, getting their food. No one just stopped just to ask if he was okay. It was like the first go-to or instinct was to complain. And Francis, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the manager, I mean, that's crazy to think that they see people overdose all the time, which really, really speaks to the epidemic of drug use that is happening across the country. Um, The fact that she wasn't surprised by that and she actually thought that he would make it and survive that is really, really telling. As I'm sitting here now, it's just crazy to think that like I said, people were just going back and forth across their day, and he was here alone and overdosed, and he was by himself, and his family was not here. I never had to wonder what was going through Joshua's mind leading up to his death. After his sister Amber reached out to me on Instagram, we kept in touch and she shared Joshua's last journal entries with me. They were written a few years before he came to California. It's called My Testimony. He wrote, all my life I have suffered loss after loss, pain, guilt, resentment, anger, and depression. Thus, my experiences causing me to believe the world was out to get me. I searched for love in all the wrong places, and longed for acceptance. I was abused as a child in every way imaginable, neglected and abandoned, placed in foster care at the age of four where I suffered more of the same, not understanding why I was taken away from my mother. I was adopted by my aunt and uncle who loved me dearly, but I couldn't believe it. How could they if my own mother didn't? So I acted out and pushed them away. I was full of anger and rage and felt the world should pay. I was homeless on numerous occasions, I went from living upper middle class with my adoptive parents to sleeping in the grass. My oldest son and I were on the streets and he got to see all of me at my worst. He was only six. Needless to say, my life has been a mess. God has been calling me for a long time now, but I was not ready to give up the misery I had become so comfortable in. This uh, journal entry that Joshua wrote was on my mind as my conversation with David picks back up. When we talked, we were approaching the three-year anniversary of Joshua's death on March 31st. What are your thoughts when you think about your time with Joshua and the years that he spent with you and the relationship that you all had to think that that was how his story ended? Like, what, what goes through your mind? Um, that was kind of the furthest thing from my mind would be how he ended it. Um, but to be honest, I didn't think it was going to end in a good way anyways. Uh, he was just too much. Uh, I don't care what the laws are. I'm going to do my own thing type thing. Mm-hmm. He developed really developed that attitude where I'm just going to do my own thing. 
and it doesn't matter what the law says or anybody else says, I'm just going to do me. And being in my 30s at the time, I had already figured out that that's not how life works. That's not going to be a good ending. Tragic nonetheless. I mean, right. it, very to, tragic. To be separated, I think, from family and be alone. And I guess that's the part that really gets me is because there was no one around. Did you cry when you found out? Um, yeah. And uh, I, even when you contacted me about doing this podcast, it, it bothered me for about quite a while. I even went to work talking about how it brought up all these uh, feelings of pain and uh, just missing him. And uh, cried several times since the 20 year old's picture still in my head. You know, it's. Uh, I've gotten pictures since the last time he lived with me, you know, but. That still in my head is, you know, this wonderful 20-year-old person with so much potential. And this is what that came to. And it's just, it, it's sad and it hurts. And uh, it hurts me that I couldn't do better for him and, and, and save him. And really that's all I wanted to do from the get-go was just save him from this shitty life that he had. And uh, I wasn't in the best place in my life at the time I was trying to save him. And couldn't even save myself. And uh, But I, that's what I wanted for him. I wanted him to find some happiness and find some peace. And, uh, just grow up and live a long, happy life, and it didn't happen. So when you think of Josh's reputation today, what are words that come to your mind? How do you remember him? What are the words that come to your mind? So much potential loss. Just, he really was just such a wonderful, loving person that cared so much and just had so many bad examples of how to deal with that and just didn't couldn't figure out how to connect with people in a, a really meaningful way that would change him not just them I mean, he made a lot of impact on a lot of people it's just sad that he couldn't find his own grounding his own potential he couldn't see it uh, again, I, I wasn't his birth parent, but as a parent, that's something you don't want to see is your kid going before you. You know, your kids are supposed to last longer than you. They're supposed to be there after you're gone. You know, you're not supposed to read things about your kids like this in the paper where they pass away. Learning of Joshua's death will always stay with me. I wish I can say that I'm optimistic things will get better. A report released this month by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health 
says that there is a surge in drug overdoses and the death rate increased 55% among people experiencing homelessness in LA County between 2019 and 2021. Joshua was among them. In 2021, there were more than 2,200 unhoused people who died. The leading cause of death was drug overdoses, making up more than a third of deaths of unhoused people in LA County in 2020 and 2021 combined. This year, between January 1st and March 30th, there were already over 330 unhoused deaths, according to the medical examiner's office in LA. Lauren Silver, a medical death investigator I spoke with on the last episode, said a lot of deaths among unhoused people are preventable. I really can't help but wonder what Joshua's life could have been. In his journal entries, one of the last things that Joshua wrote was a poem. I'll share it with you. It's called Carry Me. Carry me, O Lord, I can't walk any further, for I feel as though my spirit has been murdered. Lift me up and place me upon your mighty shoulders. Become my strength, for my hope does falter. My enemies look upon me, mock me and laugh. My faith has weakened, my soul is downcast. But I know there is nothing too rough for you to carry me through. Until my courage be refreshed, my strength renewed. Though I sink in the waters that I stepped out on in faith, I know that when I call out to you, I will be saved. For I can do nothing without you, but only through your strength. And when my soul thirsts and hungers, you were its food, its drink. You shall keep my path straight, lest I stumble along the way. And if I shall fall, pick me up and carry me to a brighter day. Reputation is a production of Heat Drawn Media. This episode was written, reported, and executive produced by me, your host, Ethan Ward. Sound engineering by Jayha Joshua Chang. Original music composition by James Ingram of Mega Dream Productions. Art and graphics by Kelly Bernard. We're grateful for your support. If you haven't yet, please rate and follow our feed in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Or you can share the episode with your friends. Join the conversation on Twitter at ReputationPod or hit me up at I am Ethan Ward. You can also email us at reputation at heatron.com.